The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, my friend. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you this morning, and we are very glad that you have joined us in worship. My name is Dave Hahn, if you don't know me, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege, as always, to open God's word with and for you this morning. In 1977, uh, two significant things happened in my life, maybe more than two, but I'm gonna talk about these two in particular. The first was uh, the first installment of the epic trilogy Star Wars arrived in theaters, and it's hard to beat that one. And then the second one is that I had begun attending a new school in what was the second half of my second grade year. We had kind of moved in the middle of the school year. And on my first day of school, the teacher had me stand up in front of the class to introduce me to everyone and to have everyone introduce themselves to me. One of my classmates stood up and he introduced himself as Luke, to which I excitedly replied, you mean like Luke Skywalker from Star Wars? Star Wars being like the biggest thing in the world at this time, so it was very present of mind for me. And all of the kids laughed, except for Luke. I noticed that he kept looking at me as the day kind of went on. And I was honestly a little bit worried about what would happen once we got outside for recess based on the way that he was looking at me. And my plan was to avoid him for as long as possible. But as the recess bell rang and we got to the playground, before I knew what hit me, I was on my stomach with my face in a snowbank and Luke was kneeling on top of me saying through a growled snarl, don't ever call me Luke Skywalker again. To which I replied, but you could call me Han Solo. You know, because the last name. It took a few days, but Luke and I became great friends, and I was known excitedly as Han Solo throughout grade school. Even though the Hans are spelled different, H-A-H-N for me, H-A-N for Harrison Ford's character. 
Now, fortunately, I have had very few scuffles with anyone since then, but I still remember how comfortable it was to feel as though someone had it out for me, rightly or or wrongly. If you remember, several chapters ago in the book of Genesis, Jacob had tricked his older brother Esau out of his birthright and their father Isaac's blessing. Infuriated, Esau was intent on killing Jacob, and their mother, Rebekah, helped Jacob escape the evil plans of his older brother. And then last week, if you were here, we finished up chapter 28 with Jacob receiving a dream from God in a place called Bethel, letting him know that he would always be with him. And today, Because we are four chapters ahead of where we left off last week, and for the purpose of providing context of where we will be, I thought I would give us a kind of a high-level overview of what has happened in Jacob's life since we left off in chapter 28. As chapter 29 begins, Jacob left Bethel and landed in his intended destination. It was a place called Haran, and he was in search of his uncle Laban, which was his mother Rebekah's brother. And upon arriving in Haran, Jacob met Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel, and he fell in love with Rachel. In fact, he was so in love with her that he promised to work for Laban for seven years if he would give Rachel to him. And after seven years of labor, Jacob went to him and Laban tricked Jacob, and he swapped out Rachel for Leah forcing him to marry Leah instead of Rachel. Jacob, still deeply in love with Rachel, worked seven more years for Laban, which was on the condition that he could marry Rachel also. And all the while, Scripture tells us that Jacob hated Leah and he loved Rachel. God, seeing that Jacob favored Rachel over Leah, caused Leah to be pregnant with four sons while making Rachel barren. Rachel, envious of Leah, cried out to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. To which Jacob replied, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Desperate for a child of her own, Rachel encouraged Jacob to sleep with her servant. Jacob agreed, and Rachel's servant bore two sons. And then experiencing a barren season of her own, Leah envied Rachel and encouraged Jacob to sleep with her servant. Again, Jacob agreed, and Leah's servant bore two more sons. And if all that wasn't dysfunctional enough, we get to Genesis chapter 30, where Rachel trades Leah a fertility plant called a mandrake for some time alone with Jacob. And because Rachel was still without a child and wanted to get pregnant herself, she decided to put her trust in a plant to conceive rather than trust in God. Jacob went in to Leah, who conceived three more times, bearing two sons and one daughter. Then, in verse 22 of chapter 30, we are told that God remembered Rachel. God remembered Rachel and gave her her first son with Jacob, who is Joseph. 
And then finally, as we finish chapter 31 and we begin chapter 32, we see a parting of ways between Jacob and his uncle Laban, followed by a reconciliation of sorts, which really feels more like a contract. And then we see the beginnings of Jacob heading home to face his furious brother Esau, from whom he had run 20 years earlier. That's a heck of a 20 years. And my friends, I present you with this high-level overview of chapters 29 through 32 to shine a spotlight on how ridiculous and how sinful we, God's chosen people, can be. And even more than that, to shine a brighter spotlight on how glorious and faithful God has been, how faithful God is, and how faithful God ever will be. I mean, as I was giving you that blow-by-blow of chapters 29 through 31, did you find yourself like me thinking, this sounds really familiar? Didn't we go through all of this with Abraham and with Isaac? And the answer, of course, is yes, we did. We have said from the very beginning of this series that What we see over and over again in Genesis is the blessing of God, the sin of his people, and God's continued grace on them. And is that not exactly what we have seen? Generational blessings and grace in spite of profound generational sin. I mean, what kind of a God would put up with people like these? Our God, and only our God. Friends, we we need to let stories like these remind us of our own sinfulness that has been met with the unmerited love and favor of God. And that the only one who is worthy of our admiration, our praise, and worship is God himself, not his people. Worship and admire and praise God, even at the expense of his people. As one pastor put it, our unfaithfulness in light of God's faithfulness makes ours more heinous. But his faithfulness in light of our unfaithfulness makes his all the more wonderful. So let our hearts be stirred in worship for him because church, Our God is a God of reconciliation and transformation. Reconciliation and transformation between us and him, first and foremost, but also one to another. Luke and I, on that fateful day, needed it. Jacob and Esau needed it. And so does everyone else. So does everyone else. So let's look again at verses 22 through 23 of chapter 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So we begin this story with Jacob and his entourage on one side of the Jabbok River, which then flows into the Jordan River. And that evening, Jacob woke everybody up 
and he sent everything and everyone across a narrow, shallow portion of the river while he stayed back to be alone with God. And that piece of this story is both a critical one and one that we could easily miss, his staying back to be alone with God. And the reason it's significant is because we struggle to be silent and alone with God. And we underestimate how significant it is for our own spiritual growth. If you have been around Disciples Church for really any time at all, you know that we routinely spend portions of our time in this service being silent and alone with God. And our intent in doing so is not to make you uncomfortable, but to give you an opportunity to quiet your minds and your hearts so that we might both enjoy God and hear from God. More than that, we hope that these moments in service are really only the beginnings of your regular times in silence with God throughout your week. And that in time, the noise from the outside and the noise that goes on within would gradually quiet down and cause you to actually look forward to being still with God, to help you sense his presence and to hear his voice more clearly. It is important, my friends, to recognize how powerfully God speaks when we are alone with and silent before him. And that if you want to meet God personally and powerfully, it requires periods of solitude and stillness. Like us, it would have been very easy for Jacob to busy himself or to cross over with everyone else. He had a lot to do but he seemed to know that staying back by himself with God was the far better thing. I mean, as we reviewed earlier, in the 20 years that had passed since Jacob had left home, much had happened in his life, and God had showed himself to be incredibly kind and committed and faithful to him. So as such, it may be that Jacob had something very specific in mind for this time alone with God, perhaps to offer prayers of gratitude or prayers of supplication. But as we read, that is not what happened. I do think that it is safe to say that Jacob did not expect what came next. He did not expect what came next. Continuing in verses 24 through 25. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So from the evening until the break of the day, Jacob found himself in a wrestling match with a man, and not just any man, but a man with a capital M. The man. Notice that verse 24 does not say that Jacob wrestled with a man, but that the man wrestled with him. And I think that that's significant, especially when we realize that in verse 28, the identity of this man is God. More likely, the Son of Man and the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. 
Now, I believe that this wrestling match did really happen, but I also think that it stands as a metaphor of sorts in that God in Christ was wrestling Jacob and not the other way around. And here's why I think that that little distinction matters. Ultimately, it was God who wanted something from Jacob more than Jacob wanted something from God. It was God who wanted something from Jacob. And so he engaged in this wrestling match. I mean, after all, isn't it he who starts the fight that is usually the aggressor? In second grade, I found my face pushed into the snow because Luke wanted something from me. And I would have preferred that he went about it a little less violently. <laughs> Last week, what we saw in Jacob was one who tried to bargain with God, saying essentially, if you do this, then I'll do that. Do you remember? In the overview of chapters 29 through 32, as we read them earlier, we saw evidence of a man who believed that he was in control and could orchestrate things to go his way, to get what he wanted when he wanted it. And in all of that, Jacob played the part of the aggressor and the initiator, attempting to put God in the place of being the responder. But that's not how God does things. God, my friends, is always, always the initiator. And it is we who respond to him. God does not bend to our will. It is we who submit to his. And that's what we see here in verses 24 through 25. God in Christ initiated an encounter with Jacob, seeking to strip him of his self-reliance, self-importance, and so-called wisdom, and to replace it with a deep dependence upon God's spirit, God's strength, and God's wisdom. And he was going to engage Jacob in that struggle for as long as it took. And according to verses 24 and 26, this struggle lasted the whole night, proving mankind's insatiable desire to have things his or her own way and to foolishly try to bring to bear our will over God's. But my friends, it's a futile struggle because God always wins. Tim Keller, pastor from New York, said it this way. In general, God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into one. God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into one. You see, God loves us enough to forgive us and bring us into his kingdom, even though we still wrestle with our flesh through rebellious, self-reliant, self-aggrandizing, and sinful behavior. But he also loves us enough to not leave us that way. The first part of that love is what we would call justification. And the second part is what we would call sanctification for the purpose of gospel transformation. And I think the reason that we recoil at 
and struggle so much with suffering, difficulty, and hardship in our lives is because as spiritual children, we don't like being disciplined. And we don't like being transformed. We don't like being made to grow up. So friends, we must understand that the reason for God's wrestling with his children, and he does, is never punitive. Rather, it is always disciplinary. And the distinction between punishment and discipline is significant. See, punishment flows from anger, and it takes a backward look at the wrong that has been done. Whereas discipline flows from love, and it takes a forward look toward who that person can grow to become. Punishment is motivated by justice, whereas discipline is motivated by grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through six reads this way. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Disciples Church, our God loves us enough to wrestle us to the ground with the intent of stripping away from us whatever is not in keeping with being a child of God or living within the kingdom of heaven. And then to replace it with everything that is. To strip us of whatever is not in keeping with our identity as a child of God and as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and then to replace it with everything that is not for the sake of punishing us, but to sanctify, refine, mature, and bless us. And as such, if and when God does so, we should expect that it will hurt, at least a little bit. We should expect that it will hurt because in his great love for us, he takes from us what we have sinfully clung to and depended on in place of him, and he humbles and he frees us through making it clear that he is God and that we are not, and then he reminds us that he has all the power and that we have none of it. And the sooner and more fully we submit each and every aspect of our lives to him, the less likely it is that the pain of our struggle with God will last if he needs to wrestle us at all. Jacob held out all night, all night, as a sign of his unwillingness to be transformed and to let go of what God wanted to take from him. And as a result, his hurt was all the more significant. So I ask you today, what or who are you clinging to more tightly than you are to God? What otherwise good thing might God have to lovingly wrestle from your hands so that he can take those hands and place them more firmly upon him? Whoever it is, whatever it is, would you be so bold as to confess it to God and then ask him to help you to surrender it to him 
He wants to do that. Because friends, a, a life fully surrendered to God is quick to realize that everything is from him and for him and that nothing and no one ought to sit on the throne of our lives but God himself. One last thing about verses 24 through 25. When we read this, when he, he being God, saw that he did not prevail against him, him being Jacob, it may appear as though Jacob was evenly matched with God. But that is a ruse. That is an illusion. Think instead of the dad who gets on the floor and wrestles with his young kids. Letting his son or daughter think they actually have a chance. Until, of course, dad decides that it is time to make clear who truly has the power. I think that's what's happening here. The only reason the struggle between God and Jacob went on as long as it did is because God, according to his purposes, allowed it to. And I think that it's wise to let that serve as a warning unto each of us. Because in our rebellion and sin, we might think God to be somewhat blind or impotent, especially when it appears as though we've gotten away with something. But what we're really experiencing in those moments is a demonstration of God's kindness, God's patience, and God's mercy on us. Because at any moment in his loving discipline, he can bring to bear what we believe we had otherwise avoided. Just like Jacob, you and I are no match for God. And just like Jacob, should we decide to foolishly wrestle with him, let it be that we too can say, I saw God face to face and I lived to tell the story. Moving on to verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So do you see what's happening here? In verse 25, God had knocked Jacob's hip out of place with a touch. And here in verse 26, God essentially says to Jacob, this has gone on long enough. You're not going to win. And I don't want to hurt you anymore. But Jacob, utterly defeated, would not let go of God until he blessed him. And though Jacob had no ground upon which to stand, in desperation and in hope, he asked God, the victor, for something that he had not earned and that he did not deserve. And here's the big idea. The death grip that Jacob had on God was what God wanted from Jacob all along. The death grip that Jacob had on God was what God was after from Jacob all along. And it is what he wants from you and from me too. A recognition and an acknowledgement of our own weakness, of our own lack of control, and our own dependence upon him that demonstrates itself in clinging tightly to him for everything and anything that this life has to offer. That's what God is after. And friends, when we realize that we have nothing 
and that we are nothing apart from God, we get everything in return. We get everything in return. Until now, Jacob had been using God as a means to an end. But here in his weakness, wrestling with God, Jacob recognized all that he had been searching for was within his grasp. This is what I have been searching for, the one who I am clinging to. To recognize that God himself is the end, not a means to an end. That God himself is the blessing, not just the one who gives the blessing. And that God only wrestles with us for the purpose of blessing us. As Charles Spurgeon said it, while Jacob was so strong, he won not the blessing. But when he became utter weakness, then did he conquer. Then did he conquer. I remember a Texan pastor that I listened to early on in my faith journey would say this often. Whenever someone comes to me and says, I'm near the end of my rope, I would always reply, well, then grease that sucker because it's at the end of that rope where you'll find Jesus. Grease that sucker. It's at the end of our rope, at the end of ourselves, that we find Christ. Moving on to verses 27 through 30. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And perhaps the most difficult part of this struggle with God, Jacob is confronted with his need to admit who he was. Remember that the name Jacob means deceiver or heel grabber, and that is exactly who he has always been. He has spent most of his life trying to deceive everyone about everything, God included. And the significance of a person's name in this time and place was far greater than the way that you and I may view our own names or the names that we give to our children. In this time and place, your name was intertwined with your identity. And by admitting that his name was Jacob, he was confessing who he had been to a God who knew it all too well. And God, in his great love and mercy, gave Jacob a new name, and with it, a new identity. This is a third person in scripture who has been given a new name, and with it, a new identity. And it doesn't end there. My friends, this is what Jacob's struggle with God led to a new identity as a beloved son of God. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5.17, through faith in Christ, we, like Jacob, become new creatures. The old things pass away. New things have come. 
Jacob's new name, Israel, is a combination of two Hebrew words, Sarah, meaning fight, struggle, or rule, and El, meaning God. And according to some Hebrew scholars, God is not the object of the verb here, but the subject. So Israel likely means God rules. God fights, or God prevails. And it was this truth that Jacob and all of God's people, you and I included, need to be reminded of. According to verses 30 through 32, through Jacob's new name and through his own testimony of how he got his new limp, God cemented his love, protection, and sovereignty into the hearts and the minds of all who would trust in him, saying, I am God, you are not, and I will fight for you. I am God, you are not, and I will fight for you. One of the commentators that I read as I was studying this week pointed out that from this point on in scripture, whenever his name was mentioned, Jacob or Israel was called Jacob twice as often as he was called Israel. And what that likely means is that Jacob, like you and me, struggled with his new God-given identity. He struggled to be Israel. And he would vacillate between who God said he was and who he had once been. Isn't it encouraging to know that you and I are not alone in this struggle? And even more encouraging than that is this. Jacob's identity, like our identity if we know Christ, is not dependent upon what we did, but dependent upon what Jesus did. Our identity is not dependent upon what we do, but upon what Jesus did. God, my friends, sees us now for who he made us to be in Christ. And the whole of this life is the process of becoming who God says we already are in his son. The whole of this life is the process of becoming who God says we already are in his son. Which means that the identity God has given us in Christ is unchangeable and it is irrevocable because we did nothing to earn it and Christ gave everything to provide it. And our ability to live in view of that identity requires that we remember and re-remember and re-remember who we are in Christ and to continually reject who we once were. Throughout the Old Testament and prior to his incarnation, Jesus appeared in various forms. Here in Genesis 32, he appeared as a heavenly being who wrestled with Jacob and won. And what that means is that Jesus had struggled with man as God prior to his incarnation. Jesus had struggled with man 
as God prior to his incarnation. But then in his incarnation, he wrestled with God as man. Listen to Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9. Just a couple verses before the one we had read earlier. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the prayers that Jesus offered to God the Father in John 17 and in the Garden of Gethsemane found in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 are the cries and the prayers that the writer of Hebrews is referencing here in Hebrews chapter 5. According to Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus in his humanity wrestled with God. But in obedience he ultimately surrendered to everything that God had prepared for him. Jesus, being fully man and fully God, knew that he was about to be betrayed, mocked, beaten, and killed for our sake, that he would become sin in the flesh, and in doing so, for the first and the only time in eternity, that he would be forsaken by his Father so that you and I never would have to be. And he wrestled with his father in the garden over whether or not things had to happen this way, sweating with great drops of blood and saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And my friends, just as Jesus' obedience came through his suffering, according to Hebrews, so it does for you and for me. But to be clear, our suffering does not come because of the sins of others as it did for Jesus, but through the lifelong process of letting go of who we once were and becoming who God says that we are in Christ, just as it was with Jacob. Our suffering comes through leaving behind who we once were and becoming in full who God says we already are growing up, maturing, being sanctified. Sometimes God afflicts us to humble us and cause us to be dependent upon him in a way we otherwise would not be. But the blessings that come from those afflictions, if we surrender to God's loving purposes for us, are far greater than the hurt that we feel from those same afflictions. It feels upside down in a little bit, doesn't it? That it would go that way? But friends, we, we must remember that in God's kingdom, through death, came everlasting life. Through crucifixion and the tomb came the throne and the palace of our eternal king. And through what appeared to be defeat came ultimate victory. Let our hearts and our minds be transformed by these incredible and challenging truths. And 
to know that when we hurt the most, maybe today, like Jacob, we can cling ever so tightly to our God and our King, knowing that he loves us, that he is for us, and that he is always with us, intending to transform us into the likeness of the one who came for us and died for us and rose again on our behalf. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we confess that we love the comforts of this world more than we desire the discipline that comes to us through suffering for our ultimate good and for your glory. We confess that we do not associate difficulty or hardship with the sufferings of Christ, nor do we see it as a means through which our obedience comes. And yet, Father, you, in your great love for us and your understanding of what it is that we most need are always refining and maturing us until we become the perfect reflection of your Son unto whom we are bound. Father, let our lives be marked by surrender to and love for you above all else. Would you loosen our grip on all that is not you and let us live according to the new identity that we have been given through the blood of Christ, which has eternally cleansed us and through his resurrection and life in us, which eternally binds us with you. In Christ's name we ask and we pray. Amen.